Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to our Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing for October 19th, 2021. We are live streaming from the traditional and ancestral territory of many people. We are grateful to live and work in Alberta, a province on the traditional and ancestral territory of 48 different First Nations and the unceded homeland of the Métis Nation. Today's conversation is being shared in ASL. To ensure access to completely accurate information, closed captioning will be uploaded after the live stream is complete. This conversation for the public is being shared live on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. The Protect Our Province COVID-19 briefing is a regular panel of doctors and experts. We will endeavor to bring timely, accurate updates on the COVID-19 crisis in Alberta and take questions from the media. The views of our panelists are their own and do not represent any institutions they may be affiliated with. We have collectively gathered here as concerned Albertans attempting to ensure that everyone in the province has access to as much information concerning COVID-19 in Alberta as possible. As always, we will start things off with a brief update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta. Thank you so very much, everyone, for joining us. Today, I guess I need to correct my introduction. We have gathered many folks as concerned Albertans um, from across the globe. I think that this is one of our largest panels in terms of distance um, that the digital barrier or digital gap has bridged um, in order to be with us today. And I am exceptionally thrilled to have so many leading international experts with us to unpack a very unique and seldom talked about topic that really has shaped Alberta's trajectory of yeah, of the, yeah, Alberta's trajectory of the pandemic. There's really no other way to say it. So many, we talk a lot about policy and the choices that our government has made. And today, I think we're going to get a really unique look at where some of those decisions may have come from, how those things have been enacted in other parts of the world, where they are currently at, and what that means for us going forward. Um, as always, we will start things off with a quick update on the COVID-19 situation in Alberta with Dr. Vipond. Thank you very much, Dr. Vipond. Thanks so much, Michelle. Um, you can go straight to the slides. I want to save all the time for our panelists. Um, and we're going to do the weekend numbers because strangely enough, the government um, decided to uh, host its briefing at the exact same time that we usually host ours. Usually they do a 3.30, we do a 4.30. Um, but in order to accommodate their briefing. We've kindly moved our briefing to 3.30. So we're going to do the weekend numbers. So if you could bring up the slides, maybe. There we go. So this is uh, the trajectory. You can see we've um, see, continue our trend downwards. We had three more days of decreases. Next slide, please. Um, the next, uh, the most important number in my mind, oops, go Oh yeah, there it is. Is the is the uh, seven day average, which is now at seven hundred and seventy seven, which is a twenty five percent decrease um, from the thousand thirty four that we had last um, last uh, Monday. So the Friday drop was twenty nine percent. So the the decrease isn't as steep as it was, but still pretty steep, and I'm pretty happy with that. You can also see positivity there continues to drop with numbers of anywhere from 6.92% on Friday to 8.51% uh, on, on Sunday. Next slide, please. Really, really stubborn to get those hospitalizations and ICU numbers down. Um, and uh, it's, it's 
you know, remembering that the most recent numbers are all underestimates and they always revise them upward. Um, we can probably look to, uh, to our, our most recent accurate number being maybe Thursday at 787 um, and uh, for inpatients. And, and that is a nice drop from our high uh, in the mid 860s, um, but, uh, but still taking its time to drop. Next slide, please. And I just want to point out here that even though we're dropping, you can see that we are way, way, way above the hospitalization and ICU rates uh, still uh, of the last two waves. Next slide, please. And this is just a great graphic that Matthew uh, uh, Black of CTV News has put together comparing the, the last three waves. So you can see that our cases are pretty much paralleling the, the second wave, which was our biggest wave. Um, uh, the deaths also paralleling because I, I honestly think we'll be seeing that, that, see that plateau there in the fourth wave, that'll be going up because deaths always take a while to be reported. So basically we're exactly paralleling that second wave uh, and then hospitalizations and ICU way above. And I think the important thing to recognize is in that second wave, we had no vaccinations and now we do. And so the fact that we're failing so badly despite vaccinations, I think really underlines the, the failure of the vaccine only approach. Next slide, please. And this is the uh, ICU rate you can see again, um, just uh, slowly dropping um, Friday minus six to 224, Saturday minus four to 220 and Sunday plus five to 225. So slowly, slowly dropping. Next slide, please. Another 30 deaths reported. Um, that includes uh, two 30-year-olds um, and, uh, sorry, uh, two, one 30-year-old male and um, two 40 to 49-year-old, both a female and a male. Uh, and just to point out the, the stats as compiled by Matthew Black, seven-day average of 11 deaths per day, which is, I mean, horrible to think about. And um, in the last seven days, 106 people have died. Next slide, please. And uh, just reminding people that this is the rural wave. You can see the two urban centers being less than half that of the of the rural districts. Um, so uh, so really concerning there. And then next slide, please. And this is maybe the one of the main reasons why we're we're here gathered today is to recognize that. This has really truly been um, a wave of the kids because look at how high the five to 11s are, even though they've dropped in half from, from the peak, um, they still are about twice the amount of any other age group, those five to 11, unable to be vaccinated group. Next slide, please. And we continue to be told that the kids are safe and we don't have to worry about the kids because they don't get that sick. But uh, just over the weekend, we had another, and it's a bit hard to tell because these are gross numbers, but it looks to me like we had one new ICU admission in the 10 to 19 um, age group and uh, another hospitalization in the one to four group. And then there've been some adjustment, adjustments retroactively so that the net numbers uh, are negative. Next slide, please. I think that's it actually. So that brings us to the topic at hand, which is uh, this pursuit of herd immunity. Um, Early on in this wave, I called this the intentionally cruel wave because it seemed quite obvious that the policies or lack of policies put in place by the Alberta government seemed to have the explicit intention of infecting people, infecting those that are unvaccinated. In fact, I distinctly remember a, a tweet by our 
um, chief medical officer of health basically taunting the unvaccinated. You better get vaccinated because we're unleashing this upon you. Uh, I paraphrase it, of course, um, but that's essentially what it was. And so that um, that's where we're at now. And it seemed very strange that the UK uh, and many other provinces across the, the country enacted the same policies at the same time. So if we can understand the underpinnings of their decisions, maybe we can um, understand how to stop those really horrible decisions from going forward. And so we've gathered uh, what somebody has described as an all-star uh, team of COVID policy thinkers uh, all on one stage. So um, I'll turn it back over to you, Michelle. Thank you Thank so you. very much, um, Dr. Vipond. As Dr. Vipond mentioned today, we are going to be exploring the misguided efforts to strive for herd immunity, including the Great Barrington Declaration. But instead of listening to me try to explain exactly what all of that means and how it has influenced public health decisions and messaging in this jurisdiction and jurisdictions across the globe, I would like to invite Dr. Lisa Ayanna Tony into the conversation, and I will ask her to give us a brief introduction to herself and her practice. Hi. Uh, do you see? Yes. Hi. So I'm yes. Dr. Ayanna Tony. I'm from uh, Montreal, Quebec. I am a dermatologist, uh, and I've been working with uh, Dr. Joe Vipond in Mass for Canada for a few months now uh, in order to. Uh, influence pandemic policy and better control of the virus and that's been very difficult with a lot of counter messaging that's not based in science so that's what I wanted to uh, look at today with the panel so I'm going to start with a brief introduction of um, where did the counter messaging come from uh, it largely started with something called the Great Barrington Declaration uh, and I have slides prepared are they going to show All right. They are up and ready for you. Yes. So the Great Barrington Declaration. So it's a declaration that uh, called for something called focused protection. It was drafted and signed in October of 2020. So just as the second waves were getting started in uh, North America and Europe, uh, in the town of Great Barrington, Massachusetts, that's where it got its name. But interestingly, it was drafted at uh, the American Institute for Economic Research. So an economic institute drafting uh, a scientific statement. Next slide. All right, so what is the American Institute for Economic Research? It's basically a libertarian think tank. Um, they sponsor the declaration. Uh, the funders of this think tank include the Charles Koch Foundation, tobacco firms, ExxonMobil. Uh, they've been involved in uh, climate change denial for a long time. Uh, why was this declaration drafted there? What is their relationship to the authors? It's never really made clear. Um, just interesting that they seem connected. Um, and then next slide. Uh, on their website, just to give an idea of what this institute does, you can find articles like The Real Reason Nobody Takes Environmental Activists Seriously, Brazil Should Keep Slashing the Rainforest, and Research Claiming Sweatshops Are Beneficial for Those Working in Them. So that's a little bit of a background on, on what this uh, declaration was associated with. Next slide, please. So, okay, so what they called for? They called for something called 
they named it Focus Protection. They put this out into the world. Uh, it was basically a repackaging of the widely rejected idea of herd immunity through natural infection, the, the Swedish idea that uh, became briefly popular early in the pandemic. And then, you know, when it became clear that it was something entirely unethical, people rejected it. So um, they repackaged it into what they called uh, focused protection uh, to stay away from the term herd immunity because herd immunity is not something that's achieved by mass infection, it's achieved by vaccination when it can be achieved, which is not always the case. Um, and so with this GBD language of focused protection, uh, they attempted to resell us herd immunity, but pretend that there wouldn't be mass casualties associated. Next slide. So yeah, so I put a few of the, uh, the, the direct quotes from the uh, declaration. Basically, they said that as immunity in the, builds in the population, the risk of infection for all, including the vulnerable falls. Um, and they say that they know that will eventually reach herd immunity, which is not really something that could have been known at the time yet. Um, and that we, wouldn't, we could do it without vaccines, which is something no scientists would really agree with. Uh, the cost would be too high the most compassionate approach. So this is a compassionate approach is letting the people that aren't vulnerable live their lives while protecting the vulnerable. Um, so basically the non-vulnerable would expose themselves and then they would somehow protect the herd and we could all get back to normal life. Um, next slide. Basically they, they never really defined who is vulnerable and who is not, though they seem to suggest that only the elderly were and the young were not and that the young were sort of paying the price um, to protect the elderly from this virus and when they were not the ones affected, which we know is not the case. Um, even if that was the case, how could you entirely separate society into vulnerable and not vulnerable and protect one group and not the other? Um, there's no actual way to do that. And they never looked into you know the, the details that matter, like how many hospitalizations and deaths of these young non-vulnerable people would, uh, would result if we did this. Um, and basically there's no science to support their approach at all. Next slide, please. So this is just sort of the, the immediate reaction from the scientific community, uh, universal rejection of this idea. Uh, we have Dr. Tejos from The Who that said herd immunity is achieved by protecting, protecting people from a virus. He was discussing vaccination, uh, not by exposing them to it. Uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said this idea that we have the power to protect the vulnerable is total nonsense. Uh, history has shown that's not the case. Talk to any uh, anyone in epidemiology, infectious diseases, and they'll tell you that this is going to result in more infections, hospitalizations, and deaths of vulnerable people. Um, the co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Tax Force said that obviously the Great Barrington Fix will excite the minimizers who pretend COVID is nothing more than a flu and enliven libertarians who object to public health measures on principle. Uh, they've been offset on along. So basically it's saying that this is ideological, it's trying to repackage um, the anti-lockdown, anti-control the virus sentiment as though it is scientific when it was not. Um, and then that's gone, next slide. The Jon Snow Memorandum, which is a response from scientists uh, essentially outlining a lot of, I've already discussed of how this is unethical, unscientific, um, you can't separate society from each other. This is going to result in more death. Next slide, please. 
and then just a couple of quotes from the Johnson Memorandum. Um, a pandemic strategy relying upon immunity from natural infections is flawed, uncontrolled transmission in younger people, there's significant uh, morbidity and mortality for everyone. Uh, the purpose of the restrictions uh, that they were calling for, because this is just as the second wave was taking off, is to suppress uh, COVID infections to low levels that allow rapid detection, effective TTI measures, uh, and a return to near normal without generalized restrictions protecting our economy is inextricably tied to controlling COVID. So basically, as much as they wanted to position themselves as being anti-lockdown, um, the Southern Group scientists are saying everybody is anti-lockdown, nobody wants to be locked down, nobody wants restrictions, but that will be achieved through controlling the virus, not through mass casualties. Next slide. All right. And then, so basically, despite the universal criticism of this document and many of the people that signed it uh, trying to distance themselves from it pretty quickly, um, it still had a, a huge impact on, you know, the pandemic policy and uh, the way that we talk about the pandemic um, and this idea that, you know, to, to manage the pandemic, we don't need to actually control the virus. We just need to protect the vulnerable uh, without ever saying, you know, how to do that has infiltrated the conversation to this day a year later um, and it basically it's affected uh, pandemic policy in many countries including ours so that's sort of what we're going to talk about today and really i think for alberta has entirely dictated the strategy that our public health officials have taken everything that you were just talking about has been so prevalent in our government's pandemic response over the last 20 months that it is staggering um it's uh it's been very pervasive indeed uh even in quebec which is you know controlling the pandemic mm -hmm. alberta is it's constantly this when can we fully open without having to protect everyone so first it was oh once 65 plus are vaccinated then once 40 plus are vaccinated and then just you know it kept going this idea of we don't need to protect everyone so it really has been pervasive in the, the conversation everywhere in this country which frankly just constantly makes me want to cry and scream and fluctuate back and forth in between the two with various levels of roller coaster rage um especially when currently in Alberta our weekly death toll is staggering it continues to increase um and i yeah i really do struggle with the moral component of why as a society we have decided to accept these numbers um thank you so very much I'm going to pull you back up when we get into the panel portion of the conversation. Um, I'm going to add Dr. Gasparovich back into our conversation. I'm sure folks at home have spent time with you before. It is always a joy for me to have you with us. Um, thank you very much for being a consistent voice on these panels and such a value-added member of the POP AB team. Uh, thank you, Michelle, for the introduction. Um, okay, I, I'm a developmental biologist in the in Calgary, and yeah, I would like to talk more about the math of, of the herd immunity. Uh, so, could I have the first slide? So, to probably we will talk during a pan panel about it. So, important is to know the the terms R zero and R T. So, R zero tells us. Uh, how many people on average one infected person 
would infect with the virus if there would be no controls and no vaccinations. So R0 for the original strain that was here was assumed to be three. So one person would infect three people if there would be no controls and no vaccinations. And with that, but then we let the virus spread and mutate and evolve and it evolved in a more smarter virus and a more transmissible one. So now we have Delta that which R value is five to eight. So one person on average without vaccines and without public health measures would infect six, six people. And it is important for what we can do and how we can control the virus. Uh, and RT is when it's an R value. So how many people one person on average would infect if we when we have certain measures and certain level of the vaccination. Next slide, please. So here's a graph showing visually what RT means. Uh, so starting from 100 daily cases, if RT would be 1.5, we would have this red line, so the growth. If we bring R below one, uh, then the cases will start declining. So if R would be 0.9, uh, it's good, but it's not perfect. So still from 100 cases to get to totally quench the, um, the outbreak, we would need six months. If R is 0.7 or below, it takes much less time. So it's really good to have R below 0.8 or below 0.7. And the important thing is that, next slide, please. Um, so the idea, at least mathematically sort of, of herd immunity is to bring R value with the immunity of, the sum of the immunity of individuals will bring the R from R0 to RT of below one. For example, R would be 0.9. So for original strain, if R0 was three, and assuming that efficiency from infection would be 95% against transmission, we would need to infect 74% of population to bring R to below one, which means, so if we would do it just by infection, that means 74% infected Albertans would mean 3.3 million infected, which if 1% would die, it would be 33,000 deaths and 330,000 to 1 million long COVID. So it's just unthinkable, the amount of deaths and suffering uh, that infecting that many people would cause. So mathematically, it's it, th this idea is just a disaster. Then for now, with R, uh, R0 of delta that is equal six, uh, then if efficiency would be 95% of combination of vaccines and infection, then we would need 90% people vaccinated. But now I would like to talk, so mathematically herd immunity via infection is not basically not possible with, with, without mass casualties. Uh, and also we don't know if, it would give 95% protection against transmission. But next slide, please. But it's also not possible. So herd immunity via infection is immoral, is unethical, but also it's not possible in practice. And we see it in, it's a recent pre preprint from Iran. So this map shows, uh, shows provinces in Iran and we have three shades of green here. So from, medium green till dark blue, 
that's where that's a provinces when attack rate was higher than 100%. So over the time of the pandemic, on average, one every person was infected more than once. So despite of this high attack rates, the herd immunity via infection had not been achieved. So basically, it just doesn't work. It's immoral and it doesn't work, so it's absolutely wrong. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and okay, so again, this thing about getting R to 0.9. We could do it with just with our immunity, but for this, the amount of people vaccinated and the efficiency of vaccine would need to be very, very high. At, at the same time, at least for original variant, we brought R value to 0 0.5, 0 0.7 without vaccines, just by the bundle of public health measures. So actually bundle of public health measures is stronger in reducing cases than vaccines or immunity alone. But now when we combine immunity from vaccines and public health measures, we can still, despite Delta being so much more, more transmissible, we can still bring our value to 0.7. That means we can still stop community transmissions and eliminate the virus. And it, it's very important to, to realize it because now the voices are coming that, oh, it's not possible to eliminate. While actually once you can, if you can have R value below 0.7 and keep it for a certain time, you are able to stop the transmission and we are, we are still able to do that. But okay, coming back to the, um, immunity via infection. So now there is this dangerous idea that, okay, we have, we have vaccines, but still, so some people want to combine vaccination with infection to get to herd immunity. And it's really dangerous because it's like say, so sometimes they're saying that it's possible if we infect, let, let, that infect people who are in low risk for his hospitalizations, so people who are vaccinated or kids, then it's okay. But it's not okay to, to let people get infected with this virus, because if you infect a lot of people, some of them will get to hospital, some of them will die, and some of them will have long COVID. So it's not okay to infect people. And how it works now in Alberta, next slide, please. It's, we have the fourth wave. So despite of high level of immunization, we have, because we have Delta and the bad policy, we have high level of hospitalizations and high level of people in ICUs. And some of them are fully vaccinated. So vaccines were wasted in this way. They were supposed to protect and they still protect. But if we let virus spread in large, large amounts, some people got hit even if they are vaccinated because it's a numbers game. And now coming to children, next slide, please. So we've seen this slide already. Uh, so we see that it shows the percent of the incidence rate, so number of cases per 100,000 people in by age group. So the five to 11 years old have the highest incidence rate and they are 100% not vaccinated. But open to four years old are also 100% not vaccinated, but they don't go to in-person school. Uh, so basically our kids are not protected are, and are the most infected group in the, in the province. 
Next slide, please. And that was the plan from August to September of our government. So in August, at the end of second half of August and in September, we already had the surge of Delta. So both in K cases were growing exponentially, hospitalizations and ICUs. So we knew we have a problem. Yet the plan for school opening was not protecting kids. So we had no masks in the plan, no filtration, and also the protections that we had last year were withholded, were taken away. So there was no cohorting was removed, contact tracing was had been removed, asymptomatic testing of close stock contacts had been removed, and parents were not were not being notified of positive notif notified about positive cases in schools. Um, then we had masks in schools, but because of strong grassroots advocacy to get it. And just recently, some test trace isolate was put, had been put back and parental notifications. But also that was made after strong, strong outcry from the public. So basically all these things on the left, they are accelerating spread. So if somebody would like to infect as many kids as possible, as fast as possible, this person would just need to copy paste this plan as a recipe. Uh, and it, it's super sad because soon we will have vaccines for kids. And next slide, please. And also we are still able to control the spread by both vaccines and non-pharmaceutical non interventions. So our cases are going down. If we would decide now that we want to eliminate virus, we are totally able to do it in just several weeks, basically, if we focus on it. And we don't, probably we don't even need a strong lockdown to do this. We just need the decision and use the tools that we have. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Gasparovic. It is always a pleasure to have you with us. I will bring you back up again shortly as we get into our panel conversation. Dr. Gasparovic just mentioned the immoral, unethical, and frankly, non-possible um, policy approaches that our government has been taking, often citing a jurisdiction across the ocean, the UK, who historically has been ahead of us um, in terms of where they are with their waves and tsunami-esque patterns, and recently has been going into another incline, um, which definitely is not making me feel comfortable for that sort of December, January, February timeframe in our province again. I am very pleased to welcome our first guest from a very far away time zone, Dr. Ziodine. Um, If you could tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here today, that would be fantastic. Uh, thanks, Michelle. And um, thanks, everyone, for inviting me. So I'm a psychiatrist based in the UK. And as has already been alluded to, we are really world leaders when it comes to having a disastrous pandemic. Um, I was quite <clears throat> sorry to see that your government has copied exactly what our government is doing. But uh, I'm not sure whether you have that crucial bit of widespread corruption uh, that has really gilded our pandemic response. Um, I've been involved over the last 18 months or so in a few different initiatives within the UK and with some international collaboration. I've been mainly bringing to this work my primary research skill, which is uh, writing documents. 
but uh, as a psychiatrist, I've been thinking a, a fair bit about what the mental health impacts of the ongoing uncontrolled pandemic are both in the present and likely to be in the future. And particularly the sort of moral injury that a lot of us are sustaining, just seeing what's truly horrendous unfolding in front of us, seeing the deaths, seeing the losses, the bereaved, seeing what's happening to children and other vulnerable groups, and it's somehow being deliberately pushed, fully knowing, because that's one thing I think that really gets to a lot of us, we're no longer in the position where this is a knowledge issue. We know what needs to be done. We know what the risks are. But despite that, that continues. And witnessing that happening, I think, has a lot of us feeling in this position of simultaneously being enraged, being paralyzed by disbelief and grief at what's happening, um, and feeling completely stuck when we're encountering governments organizations and even our friends and family who seem to sort of think yeah this is all okay we just need to kind of get on with it um so i've been thinking a little bit about that recently and i'm happy to talk about that uh, a bit more on the panel but the other area that uh, i've been doing a little bit of work in the background on is thinking but why on earth is this happening who are the actors at play what are the sort of motivations that might be driving things. And as Dr. Anatoni mentioned at the beginning, the GBD is a, uh, you know, is one major part of this overarching disaster strategy, but there are other players. And certainly we have some very active disinformation groups in the UK. So I'll pause there and happy to sort of discuss things further in the panel. Thank you again. Thank you so very much. I am very excited to bring our final panel member into the conversation to introduce themselves. And then I'm going to bring everybody back up. And Dr. Vipond is going to start us off with a question. Um, a COVID Canadian celebrity is really all that I can think of as I introduce Dr. Fisman. Thank you so much for making time to be with us today. Oh, you're muted. I will unmute you. You, oh, no, I can't. You need to go. unmute you. There we go. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> thanks for that introduction. Um, it's really nice to be with you. I don't, I don't have really much of anything to add to those excellent presentations. Um, as an infectious disease physician, epidemiologist, and sometime modeler, the interesting thing about Great Barrington is that you can kind of see where it came from. You see the, the, the little wheels clicking where some, uh, somebody has a little bit of knowledge about modeling and enough knowledge to put together something that looks good in a computer, on a computer. You know, you could, you could make a computer model that looks like Great Barrington, where you magically hide vulnerable people away. You have two compartments, the vulnerable and the invulnerable, and you let the thing run out until you have uh, reached critical fraction uh, for immunity in the invulnerable, and then you mix them back together. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I get, I, I teach a mathematical modeling course and, you know, not every, every class project over the years has been equally sophisticated. And that sounds like the sort of thing that would get produced in a first year, you know, first uh, level modeling course. Obviously anyone who understands the way the world works looks at that and says, well, that's stupid. Uh, vulnerable people who live in long-term care facilities or who are, who are independent 
uh, living older people in the community or people with um, underlying medical conditions or people with, um, uh, uh, um, with, with other kinds of disabilities obviously need to be part of a community in order to be sustained and survive. So right there, you know, you can't take vulnerable people and somehow magically chop them off and put them in hibernation till the, the pandemic's over. That's just stupid. Um, then you get into the fact that, well, you, you know, as, as Gosia pointed out, the, the reproduction number has gone up and up and up and up um, over the course of the pandemic, precisely because of um, the virus being passaged and allowed to evolve and allowed to uh, sort of self-select more, uh, more fit uh, mutants over time, it's gotten us Delta. Um, and, and this has just become all the more impossible. So you wind up with, I think Gosia's, I'm not sh totally sure, I think might even be underestimating the degree to which um, herd immunity uh, via infection would be devastating. Because don't forget, if you hit critical fraction for herd immunity, via active infection, when you cross that threshold, you've got a massive number of active infections. So it doesn't just, the epidemic doesn't just drop to zero. It's it's like, um, you, you know, a truck rolling down a hill and reaching the bottom of the hill. It's going to keep rolling on the flat for a while. So if you have hundreds of thousands of prevalent infections, even if the reproduction number is 0.9 or 0.8, each of those hundreds of thousands of infections are going to make 0.9 or 0.8 new infections before they get better and so on and so forth. So you effectively, for a reproduction number of, you know, what we have with Delta, you wind up basically the whole population infected. And that gets into the second issue, which is once you allow massive levels of infection to happen, you're seeing this, and Joe showed this in the Alberta pediatric data, rare events become common, right? R events that are proportionately rare, rare as a percentage of infections like pediatric ICU admission, you start to see substantial numbers of those because you've allowed your iceberg to grow so much that you can see the big tip of the iceberg. Now, a lot of this kind of bad policy, and it's obviously bad policy, and it's that's evident to people on this call, I think may have been easier sell in Alberta. I love Alberta a lot. It's, it's quite a wonderful place. Um, but I do also know that throughout the pandemic, Alberta's really been the most disinformed province in Canada. Uh, it sort of stood apart from other Canadian provinces in terms of prevalence of disinformation. And I don't understand that. I don't know where that comes from. I do think you have a disinformed government, or at least a government that seems to act in ways that are consistent with, with prevalent disinformation. And there have been times when I've even wondered if that's uh, impacted your chief medical officer as well. So, I, you, you know, I think... I, I, I think all of us have been vulnerable to these currents that have led to very bad places. Alberta may have been slightly more vulnerable. And I think via poor leadership, uh, it's really brought, you know, br brought a health system that was once a kind of a Canadian crown jewel, sort of brought it to its knees. And it's terrible to see and entirely predictable. Um, and I'll leave it at that. Oops, and now Thank you so very much, Dr. Fisman. I am going to bring everybody back into our conversation on that note. Um, I think it is an ongoing discouragement for a lot of the citizens of Alberta that we are living under a 
a fairly corrupt system, at least that's my opinion, when you have a government that is choosing to let folks die when there are other alternatives. <laughs> um, so with that, I'm going to turn things over to Dr. Vipond to start our conversation. I have so many questions. So I, I might take a, um, a little bit of privilege and ask a few before I turn it back over to Michelle. Um, I guess the first question I have for the crowd and, you know, put up your hand and feel free to answer. We have a big panel. And so I know that, um, that and we don't have a ton of time, so I, I know it's going to be a bit busy, but didn't we see a country known as Sweden attempt this over a year ago and, and, and in many people's minds fail miserably? How did this possibly get resurrected after the Swedish disaster? Did anybody have any insights on that? Yeah, David, that'd be great. And then Hisham after. I mean, I, I, I don't have any insights, but that was an awkward silence. So I did <laughs> to put up my hand. I, you, you know, what I would, what I would say is one of the most fascinating things about the pandemic and you see it over and over in both directions is um, jurisdictions don't pay attention to what's happening in other places. And that cuts both ways. So when you see sort of disastrous responses, um, other jurisdictions follow exactly the same path without a thought. Similarly, when you see outstanding responses and you see things that work in different places, there's no uptake. So, I, I mean, within Canada, all you had to do to figure out how to deal with the pandemic is look at what they're doing in Nova Scotia and do that, right? It, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science. A lot of testing, aggressive control, um, you know, uh, uh, some of the things they do in Nova Scotia are they post exposure sites. So when there's an exposure, they post that publicly so that people know, oh, I was at that Loblaws or Sobeys or whatever the grocery stores are called. I was on that bus. Um, that kind of, even before we were talking about backward contact tracing, effectively endorsed the idea that most cases in an overdispersed epidemic where, where, where you have um, cases tend to be very clustered. If you know where a case came from, probably there are a bunch of other cases that came from that place. And that's much more productive than forward contact tracing and asking, well, you know, who were you interacting with once you were infectious? Because you're highly likely, at least early in the pandemic, to actually be a dead end. So there was some very smart stuff going on there. I think you could look at Ontario right now God help me, it amazes me that I'm saying this, that Ontario is doing extremely well. We're not doing a ton of heavy-handed stuff. Businesses are open, schools are open. What did we do? We had masks and kids in schools from the outset. We have HEPA filters in classrooms in big metro areas. You know, Toronto District School Board got HEPA filters into classrooms and that's evidence-based. We know from the CDC that reduces transmission. HEPA and open a door window reduces transmission in schools 50%. You know, this is not this is not rocket science. This isn't about locking down. What I hear you saying is, is especially on the, the negative side, is, and I think we saw it from the beginning, is the um, it can't happen here uh, jurisdictional exceptionalism, um, where there's been you know, it, it was bad in China, but it can't happen here because we're Canadian. Oh, it's bad in Italy. Well, it can't happen here because we're Canadian. Um, oh, for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's been kind of a little bit of a racist undercurrent to some of that stuff. Oh, you know, those people are different colors, so we're not going to, do, you know, the virus doesn't give a damn. I mean, as far as the virus is concerned, you know, we're cell culture media. The English talk funny too, so they can't happen to us because we talk different from them. And with uh, that really horrible segue, um, Hisham, I I wanted to (laughs) give you a chance. Yeah, I mean, just again quickly, I think you know what the Swedish example really shows us is that you know you don't, you never have to acknowledge a failure. You can just you know point to the bits that you think are successes and keep plowing on, which is what Sweden's still doing. And because they've got enough receptive years in governments and they're suiting a lot of you know a lot of the key actors' agendas, they continue to sort of press that. Um, so you know, it doesn't become. You, you know, you've had a disastrous pandemic because you've got so many deaths and, you know, so many people have been infected. The stories about, look, they kept things going. They protected people's liberty and freedom. And that's the line that's being sold. So the, the architect of the Swedish disaster advised our government. Um, he and a, a couple of other people um, from the GBD actually prevented our, you know, argued against our government putting in a fire break in October last year that would have probably saved a few thousand people. Um, so I think that's essentially what the, the problem is, that, you know, these continuing failures are still being held up. I mean, the UK is being held up as a model now, and Singapore, South Korea are looking at the UK as a possible model to follow. And you know, there's no way you can think of the UK as a model to follow, except if you want to focus on the bits that tell the story you want to tell and push the agenda you want to push. And sadly, that is happening. Maybe I'll turn to our, oh, I'll go to David and then I'll turn to our other two uh, uh, panelists for another question. David, you can respond. Oh, no, I, I don't have anything. Okay. That, uh, <laughs> you were just gesturing with your hand. Oh, no, I was um, just doing my hand. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, yeah, so I've heard myself say this out loud too many times, and I heard Dr. Goja mention it as well. And this is the idea that this has to be intentional, um, that uh, this attempt, there's no way you would create this suite of policies without the intention of trying to get, especially the children, um, in infected and and actually was on Charles Adler, which is a, a a radio host out here in the West, and I said that, and he said you can't say that because you're impugning motivation and you can't impugn motivation. But the only other alternative I can think of is incompetence. Um, not that either is is better than the other, but looking at what's happened, and, and Lisa, you're in a, a bit of a a sweet spot being a, a, a province that's not undergoing this um, this horror, but Looking at New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, Alberta, British Columbia up until about two weeks ago, and and the UK, is there a way of envisioning people making these decisions without some kind of motivation? Or if if the, if it's not that, um, what could possibly be the alternative? I'll go to to Dr. Gasparovic and then to Dr. Yanatoni. So yeah, it's difficult to talk about motivations because of course we are not in the heads of people who make decisions. But it's really, sometimes it sounds like whenever somebody says, oh no, it's not possible, we have to like let the spread go. It's like somebody who doesn't want to make a work says, okay, it's not possible to clean my kitchen. 
and then invents millions of excuses why it's not possible. So it's almost like it's it's frustrating in this way because it looks like something that somebody really doesn't want to do, and then makes all this all these silly mistakes, and something is not done or the spread spread continues. So, for example, in in Alberta, and that's more again, it's difficult to say if it's incompetence or 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 really intentional, but we followed. We followed UK, and the gossip was that there's decoupling in the UK, so that the cases decoupled from hospitalizations. And saying something like this, it can be said only by person who didn't look at data. So why public health people didn't look at data? Because from May 27th, both, both cases and hospitalizations were growing, and growing exponentially. So if both grow, then they are not decoupled. The, the proportion changed from before, from the previous waves. And it was about like, so seven, at this time it was 7%. So 7% people who were infected, uh, so hospitalizations to infections was 7%. And before it was higher. So, so just the proportion changed. But if it was four times lower, that means only two doubling times to get to the same to the same number and and interestingly so we've been our our public health people were repeating the coupling the coupling the coupling and they had to do it without looking at data because there was no decoupling and interestingly then new brunswick decided to reopen based on alberta so they said oh alberta is doing great in july when already our cases were growing up and delta was growing up and on the on the base of this they reopened. So it, it seems that there is a gossip going on between public health people and they don't really look at data. Lisa, do you have any uh, th thoughts from your, from, your, uh, from your viewpoint there? So like uh, Gosia, it's hard to infer people's motivations. Um, did they see it coming? Did they not? I can say that it feels like they they had to have known that infections would have increased, especially in the unvaccinated, the children. Um, they saw that the children wouldn't be protected from the UK data. They had to have been looking at it at least a little. Uh, so I think it's more of this ideology that, you know, the GBD and all the people that push that ideology uh, sort of sent out into the world that it doesn't matter if kids get infected. It doesn't matter if the young get infected. And actually, it might be beneficial because we're increasing immunity without vaccines, um, which is obviously very short-sighted. Like you said, a small percentage of a big number is still a lot of kids in the hospital. It's still a lot of you know people in their 20s, 30s, 40s in ICU and some dead. Those are parents. Those are siblings. Um, and of course, the, the burden of long COVID, uh, we know that it affects kids too up to 10%, even if it was 1%, is 1% disability of previously healthy children acceptable in society if we let it infect them all? Most people would say no, but there's still this idea that just won't go away that it's fine to let the kids catch COVID. I think it's really important you brought up long COVID because it's really been absent from the conversation, I think, at least in our province. And I get the sense kind of everywhere that it's minimized and, and avoided. I, I want to give um, credit to the UK for actually having some of the best data out there on long COVID, although not acting on any of that data. <laughs> um, 
Dr. Ziaudin, uh, do you have something else you want to say? I see your hand go up. I just wanted to follow up on this point of intention. <clears throat> and it's something that I, I think we really get tripped on. And I think there's this idea of the, the privilege of intentionality, where we sort of really give a lot more weight to people's intentions, regardless of the impact of their actions, right? And we say, well, you can't infer. And yes, true, you can't quite infer. But in a sense, we don't need to infer, right? You did something that meant that thousands of people died. It doesn't really matter whether you intended to do it or not. You had the power to make those things happen or not happen, and you made them happen. Right? I don't really care whether you intended that or not. You know, um, there's an additional advantage where you, in, that, that comes in when you find that people are just frankly lying. And you think, well, okay, fine, you know, I may not be able to figure out what your um, intentions are with regards to this disastrous policy, but the fact that you're lying about the facts that you think you're relying on or the realities of what's happening do pretty much tell me that you pretty well know what you're doing. But I think we get caught up in that a lot, and that's certainly been used as a defense. So certainly in the UK, it's, you know, it's a bit like, well, we can't say that the government's following herd immunity because they say they're not. Well, they may, you know, they're spinning crap to us all the time, right? But they are so obviously pursuing herd immunity. We don't need to know, but they think that's what they're doing. David, and then we have a question from a, a reporter, and then we'll do final final uh, comments. But is, is intent? I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but is intent not important from a legal point of view in terms of? Um, uh, of outcomes and culpability. I, I, well, think, I, think, I think that may be why it gets raised. You so, know. I mean, I think, you know, we don't even get into that territory, right? Because this, this discussion about intent keeps us very far removed from even getting there. I mean, if you want to take it in the legal, it's about, okay, is the government murdering people or is it committing manslaughter? Right. right. That's what the legal difference would be. Right. Um, but again, you know, we don't really need to think about that because we can just do, well, this is what you're actually doing. Right. And we can just judge the impact of your actual actions and the alternatives that you have available to you that you've chosen not to take. Right. I think intention often in my mind has a way of kind of privileging the perpetrator. Right. Um, when actually the impact is a thing that really matters to us. I think for me, the, the, the reason for intent is um, what happens next? Um, because if this was intentional, this means we're in some ways governed by people who, who don't care about the health of children and the health of, of humans. And so for me, the intent is, are we actually governed by, um, are we governed by people with that set of moral values? And maybe I'll end on that. Where do we go from here um, with, with a lot of our, our country, uh, both countries, in, um, in the midst of, of this, this horror wave, which you know, is, is beyond preventable and predictable, is, is in, it seems to have been intentionally cruel. So maybe a, a final round on that. We'll, uh, we'll go... Lisa, Goja, Hisham, David. 
I think um, we really need to have a conversation about you know what we call the end game, what is acceptable. Uh, you know, the UK's current never ending plateau with lots of organizations, lots of daily debt. Is that acceptable to Canadians? Can we do better. We we, we have the we're privilege in Canada where the response is by region, so we can see how small differences uh, make a big difference in the health of the population. Ontario is doing a little bit more, and you know, they have much lower numbers. Nova is doing a lot more, and it's been well controlled all the time there. Um, so I think we really need to have an open discussion as population politicians, instead of having all these systems imposed upon us, have truthful models, uh, honest uh, end games presented, and decide you know where we want to go in the future because I don't think that anybody wants to keep staying on this you know roller coaster of death and despair. Yeah, I absolutely agree with what um, Lisa said. Uh, so for me, it would be what our how our future should look like for the decision making. It should be radical transparency and scientific approach. So getting real modelers to show few different scenarios so okay if somebody is saying that okay we will have endemicity please model it please show when when we will have this stable magical level that it just goes on and what how high it would be how many people will need to die until we reach it it can be modeled so and also do you do you assume that there will be how much the virus will mutate in the future, right? So to, to model this scenario, to model elimination scenario, how fast we can go there and what we need to do. And, and maybe some also other scenario, but let's have all the scenarios on the table, have the layer on it of economy, how it's how each of them translates to the economic costs. And it was already done in the past for how different jurisdictions followed last 18 months uh, and always when there was less COVID the economy was better so so you can also put it in the future and then let's make decision on it but the decision should be made of really openly made honest models and various scenarios and choose choose between them thank you Okay, I mean, I'll just be quick. Given our position in the UK, I think unfortunately we kind of need a radical overhaul of our public health messaging to actually get across, look, this is how serious this infection is. This is how serious our state is. Because unfortunately, the picture has been so muddled here. The messaging has been so bad that there's a big chunk of the population that thinks we're out of this, it's over, we don't have to do that. And the idea of bringing back any public health interventions is going to be very strongly resisted, both by the vested interests who don't want that, but also the population who understandably being told, yeah, none of this is an issue anymore, it's over, we're vaccinated, we can just open up and carry on. Um, and one thing we've been thinking about here is actually we kind of need to restore that kind of compassion within the population that, look, folks, this is not just about what you think your person living in. This many people are dying and they're dying because of our collective failure of action. 
because unfortunately we're not getting that from our government. Our government has made clear in the way that it makes clear things through leaks and so on that 40,000, 50,000 annual debts are acceptable to it. That's what our prime minister is on record saying. Um, so, you know, we're not going to get that from up there. So we've got to try and somehow build that up from within the population. And actually, no, that isn't okay. And we can't have kids falling ill and kids dying. I think we've crossed about 100 kids who've died in the UK. Last word yep. to you, David. Okay, um, so, so, so to I, I mean, the first point, I, I want to uh, uh, kind of echo the question of, um, you know, I, I think this event has shone a pretty bright light on our society here in Canada in terms of whether we actually walk the talk, when, you know, when we say we're, you know, we care about each other, you know, you love thy neighbor and all that. Do we, do, you know, do we really? Is that uh, consistent with some of the policy positions taken by governments in Canada? I do think it's, um, I do think this pandemic's shone a bright light on the extent to which I think maybe we've been a little bit sucked in by, I, I think south of the border, there's almost like a cult of individualism, you know, uh, and uh, uh, extreme materialism where life has become all about, you know, what you want and what you have. And I think we've moved pretty far away from any sort of, I mean, this isn't my original thought, but, you know, we've moved pretty far away from any sort of sense of a society involving collective goods and sometimes having to take collective action, make collective sacrifices. I think that that's a problem for us moving forward. In a sense, this has been a stress test on what we are as, as a society. And if we're quite happy to say, I don't you know, really give a damn about that person because they live in a different part of town from me. I know that they have high rates of COVID there, but you know, I'm getting my stuff from Amazon and I, I work happily from home because I'm you know, in the service industry or, or, or what have you. Um, and they're, they're not my problem. That, that's probably a bigger issue for Canada in the long run than is a pandemic, you know? So that, that I think is the first thing. So what is this said about, you know, the, the state of health of our country morally? The second issue, which is much more concrete, is I think the folks are really promoting this idea that it's, it's no biggie if kids get COVID, have pretty much stepped on a rake for us nationally as, as we try to pivot towards getting kids vaccinated so that we can actually end the pandemic. Because I think if you look at BC or Alberta, some of this messaging that it's, you know, it's really no big deal for kids to get COVID, I think what you see and what's starting to come out in public opinion data is that's, that's had an impact on parents um, who are now looking at this and saying, well, why in the name of sanity would I give my kid a vaccine when it's no big deal if they get the infection? And the fact is that I think it is a big deal. Uh, we, we really, um, as my very wise father said about polio, you know, people didn't know about post-polio syndrome during the big polio epidemics of the 1950s. They found out about it later. And why on earth would you risk this with kids that there's some sort of long COVID uh, uh, syndrome that's going to come back and bite a significant 
fraction of kids in the decades ahead. It's just foolish and cruel. But um, but but I do think that some of the same folks who've been pushing um, the don't worry, be happy sort of public health messaging at a very senior level now bear a lot of responsibility for what's going to be coming down the pike on, uh, on uh, pediatric vaccine coverage. I want to finish this panel by just responding, David, to your first statement that that maybe this is a says something about us as a society. And I want to say no. And I want to say no because we in Alberta just had a set of elections that restored my faith in our society and put the blame squarely at the foot of our political leaders. Now, granted, we did elect those political leaders um, not that long ago. Um, but now that we've, we as Albertans have seen what they have wrought upon us, um, we've said, this is not who we are. This is not who we want our society to be. And we have had more women, more progressives um, elected in the last 24 hours in any, than any time in Alberta's history. And um, I think when there is such great disruption to a society, we will have the ability to choose a radical new path. And I'm hoping that there's a loud signal coming out of our municipal elections yesterday saying, um, this is not who we want to be. And we want, we want a better society. So th those are my final thoughts. Um, I'm going to turn it back over to Michelle after thanking our guests. This has been so important. And I think it's really important for us to understand why things are happening in order to make sure it never happens again. And so for me, that's the most important thing. And as we say goodbye for today, I would also like to thank all of our panelists for joining us. We will be back on Thursday with a panel of experts looking at the impact of COVID-19 and how that has affected Albertans and medical specialists in the transplant community. Um, it's an excellent panel and I suspect it is going to be exceptionally moving and I feel very honored to get the opportunity to speak with the folks that are joining us on Thursday. Tomorrow, our neighbors in British Columbia will be holding their first Protect Our Province BC briefing. Um, it's very exciting. A panel of experts will be gathering together to look at the challenges that are facing our neighbors. All Canadians deserve access to accurate information concerning the crisis in their local communities. And so I encourage everyone watching to share the news of their panel with everyone they know in British Columbia. Um, and consider tuning in yourself. I'm planning on it. The briefing is scheduled to take place at 12 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, so 11 a.m. Alberta time. And information can be found on the Protect Our Province BC website at www.protectbc.ca. And on behalf of Pop AB, I would like to thank everyone who stood up to serve by running for office in yesterday's municipal and county elections. I would especially like to offer congratulations to both big city mayors, Mayor-elect Gonda, and Mayor-elect Sohi both attended our test, trace, and isolate rallies in August. Both of them were willing to sit and hear the concerns, fears, and impacts that the public health policy was having on YEG and YYC. I felt a great deal of hope last night, and for that, I am grateful. Until next time, stay safe, Alberta. As always, remember COVID-19 is airborne, wear the best mask you have access to, and vaccines really do save lives.